Okay. We're reading from Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 to 8. Genesis 45, 1 to 8. Now, I'm reading from the New King James Version today. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither ploughing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Buckle your seatbelts, I'm driving fast this morning. (laughs) Just as um, a bit of forewarning, it'll be rapid fire, but on the slides will be all the scripture references, so you can catch up during the week. Now, I want you to put your director hat on for a bit. If there was a story in the Bible that you would just love made into a feature film or a a mini-series, what would it be? What would be your choice if you could create that movie? Before, before this week started, I would have said the story of David. I can imagine a, a sword and sandal type epic, you know, in the vein of Gladiator or Spartacus or Troy or, or something like that, but I changed my mind this week. If, if I wanted a story of, of gritty drama and, and struggle to rival even the best of, of Dickens, then I would have to choose the story of Joseph. Joseph is a major player in the book of Genesis. He occupies more space than Abraham, than Isaac and then Jacob. And we think we know the story of Joseph well enough. You know, a boy favoured by his father, he gets a a colourful coat, he gets dreams that get him into trouble. But there's more to his story than that. There's more to his story than what we may remember from Sunday school. And this morning I want to give a summary of the story of Joseph. And like I said, it'll be rapid fire. It'll be a broad stroke, a panorama of his life from early childhood up to what we just read then in Genesis 45. Now, I'm fully aware that, that summaries can take time. I'm always, I'm always amused that when my wife seeks to summarise a movie or an episode of some show around halfway through the summary, I'm often thinking to myself, it would have actually been faster for me to watch the movie that she's talking about. 
it's going to be a little bit like that today. As I mentioned earlier, a good portion of Genesis is devoted to Joseph. There's over 11 chapters there. Now, don't be alarmed, I'm not reading 11 chapters here this morning. But I can guarantee you will think halfway through what I say this morning, it would have been quicker to read the story. And that's good, I want you to think that. I want you to go back and I want you to read it. I want you to read it in one sitting. It'll take you about 30 minutes to get through. But what I want to do this morning is put on my director's hat. I want to go through the main scenes of Joseph's life. I want to give you a feel for the man. I want, I want you to, to work out what made him tick. I want to give you a setting for the story for all the ups and downs along the way. I want us to get to the point where we read out just before that Joseph can say to his brothers, you intended harm to me, but God intended it for good to accomplish his plans. God working together for the good of those called according to his purpose, as, as Paul says in, in Romans 8. That's, that's a theme that weaves itself all throughout the Bible story. We call it providence, if you want to put a you know, theological spin to it. God at work in good times and bad, through the joys of life, through the calamities, through the ups, through the downs, through the, through the mountains, through the valleys. God's still at work. God's still sovereign. Still fulfilling a, a call on our lives. Still outworking his plan of salvation and redemption. And I want you to have that in the back of your mind as we run through the story of Joseph. And you'll see that Joseph is a key link in God's redemptive plan, a key link in the chain of God's plan of salvation for his people, a plan that's still at work in the world as we know it today. As we also links in that chain are called according to his purpose. So let's begin with, with a word of prayer. Lord God, we, we come to you this morning. We ask that you speak to us. We ask that we're receptive. We ask that you empower the preaching of your word. We ask that it can go from our ears to our heart. We ask that it can change our life. We ask that through all this we can see you at work when it doesn't look like you're there. Bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned before, most are, are familiar with the Sunday school Joseph, a, a bright-eyed young lad, the apple of his father's eye. He's decked out in a beautiful coat of, of many colours, unfairly targeted by his brother, brothers. But I, I want to put a picture of Joseph... I want you to put that picture of Joseph to the side for the time being. I want to introduce you to the boy Joseph. Now, he's had his fair share of trauma and trouble. He's grown up in the most dysfunctional of families. And you can read all this from Genesis 29 all the way through to 34. His father, Jacob, he'd made shiftiness into an art form, all too quick to deceive his father, his brother, and his father-in-law, just to get ahead in life. And we, and we know that Jacob got his own back. You can read in Genesis 29 where Jacob, presumably heavily intoxicated on his wedding night to Joseph's mother, Rachel, to the point that he didn't even realise his father-in-law swapped out the sisters, replaced Rachel with Leah sometime between the ceremony and the consummation. Joseph woke up and the next morning he married Rachel but slept with Leah. 
Fast forward a week, now Jacob has two wives, two sisters who are in constant competition with one another. Unfortunately for Leah, Jacob loves Rachel the most. Hardly the best way to start a marriage. Fast forward seven years, Jacob has two sister wives, two concubines, 11 sons, including a newborn Joseph. 11 sons in seven years. That's chaos. I, mean, I, ha- I have had four kids in seven years through one wife, and I'm a broken man at that. <laughs> I can't imagine, I just, I can't imagine having 11 boys through four different women in the space of seven years. I just can't imagine. And I guess it's no surprise that you can read in Genesis 31 that, that Jacob, in the process of, of fleeing back to his home country, has his own tent away from his bickering wives and kids. That's the family that Joseph is born into. I also want you to imagine meeting the seven-year-old Joseph, part of a family on the run, fleeing a controlling grandfather on one side on a collision course with an uncle he's never met, Uncle Esau, who's coming with 400 men. Wasn't he the one that Dad stole the birthright from? This seven-year-old boy, always observant, saw his father take leave of the family for the night. He went away, walking normally. He came back to the camp, limping. A limp that would remain with him for the rest of his life. He would have heard whispers around the camp. They are saying that Dad wrestled with God. You would have thought from then on that Jacob would have been a good spiritual role model for the young Joseph, but sadly it's not the case. It never ceases to amaze me with with the multiple epiphanies that Jacob has throughout his life, personal visits from God, he never fanned the flame of the spirit at work in his life. I mean, he had a permanent limp to show him his encounter with God, yet his legacy to his boys, and you can read it through Genesis, is one of encounter with God, leading to spiritual apathy, leading to a spiral down, leading to chaos, leading to seeking God again. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. It's a story of Jacob's life and I I call the fathers here this morning, and myself included, don't let that be the legacy you leave your children, the spiritual legacy that you're leaving your offspring. But that's what Jacob grew up in. Oh, that's what Joseph grew up in, sorry. I want you to imagine meeting a 13-year-old Joseph. You know, we celebrate when our children transition to the teenage years. But this year of transition for Joseph is one of extreme trauma and sadness. I want you to see in his eyes when he learns with the rest of the camp that his sister Dinah has been abducted and defiled. When you do the math, we can work out she only would have been 12 years old. I want you to see the shock on Joseph's face when his brothers, when two of his older brothers come back into the camp covered in blood. They've just massacred all the men in the village of Shechem in retaliation for their sister's defilement and brought her back. And finally, I want you to see a grief-stricken Joseph, 13-year-old, standing beside a mound of rocks, 
marking the burial spot of his mother, Rachel, who died while giving birth to his brother Benjamin. What do you think? What would you think if you met the boy Joseph? Bright-eyed? Happy-go-lucky? I doubt it. If you're honest, your thoughts would be the same as mine. How will this boy amount to anything? What trouble, what trauma? Apples don't fall far from the tree, do they? One of the saddest days in, in my working life was when I was doing a large feature survey in Altona in my late 20s. A young couple pushing a stroller with a young girl went to the toilet block. It started to rain. I didn't think much of it at first, but the girl was in the pram out in the rain by herself. And a gust of wind blew open the toilet door and there were her parents shooting up. They came to the park the next day. They came to the park the next day and they did the same. Now, I'm ashamed to admit it, but my first thought was that this girl is not going to amount to anything with parents like that. I'm ashamed to admit it that I did nothing. I wish I had the courage to share with her parents about God's love and his power to break addiction, but I didn't. I just went there about my work. And sometimes I think about that girl. She'd be in her late teens now, with the whole of life ahead of her. Did she break the family cycle? Did she break that family cycle of addiction? And I do pray for her from time to time. I'll never know her name. I won't know the path she walks in life, but I pray that God plucked her out and rescued her. I wonder if I would have thought the same about a 13-year-old Joseph. How will this boy be used by God? This family was supposed to be the one set apart to become a nation to bless the world. Instead, this family is in dire need of a, of a circuit breaker. And so we come to chapter 37, familiar territory. We see Joseph, the favoured one. Joseph's now 17. He's out helping some of his brothers pasture the flocks and he, bring back, he brings back a bad report of his brothers to Jacob. The meaning of the phrase is something like the, the, the brothers have a bad, bad reputation in the community, so Joseph conveys it back to his brother. Now, we know that the brothers were a rabble. Throughout these passages in Genesis, we know that you know, two of them were extremely violent. The rest of them had no qualms looting Shechem after the massacre. One slept with one of his stepmothers. The same one had good intentions, but his father called him weak as water. Another thought it no problem to engage the services of a shrine prostitute, a total rabble, a total rabble. It's no wonder they had a bad reputation in the community. As the firstborn in the family, I, I know the annoyance of a younger sibling dobbing on you to your parents. But this is beyond dobbing. We can see it time and time again. Jacob had lost control of his family. So Joseph dobs him in. Strike number one. And it doesn't help his cause when all can see as plain as day that Jacob favours Joseph above all others. Joseph, his, his favourite son of his favourite wife, his late favourite wife. 
family favouritism. It's, it's such an insidious wickedness. You would think Jacob would know better by now. He was the favourite of his mother, Rebecca, who encouraged him to deceive his father, Isaac, and his brother, Esau. Then Jacob played favourites with his wives, loving Rachel more than her sister, Leah. And it, you can read throughout the, the scriptures, it led to constant jealousy and bitterness and a very dysfunctional family. Now his favouritism is focused on Joseph. We know that Joseph, it says there in 37.3, that jo- Joseph was a, a, a son of Jacob's old age. But this is more than, than an old, older father having a, a kid later in life and spending time with the boy because you know, he's passed the rigours of uh, early family struggles and, and, and climbing the corporate ladder. We've seen Jacob's favouritism of Joseph before. You might not know it, but you've seen it. When it looked like Esau was on the warpath, Jacob ranked his boys into who should experience Esau's wrath first if things turn nasty. Can you imagine ranking your children in order of who is more expendable? Imagine being a son at the start of that list. And so Jacob made Joseph an ornamental colourful, long-sleeve robe. The brothers knew what this meant. A long-sleeve coat was no way to attire, attire a man who was going to go work in the fields. Jacob was saying, this son of mine is no mere shepherd. He's to stay here on the family estate, looking after family affairs, while the labourers, read brothers, do the hard yards. It's no wonder that the text reads they hated Joseph and couldn't even be amicable to him. But things step up a gear. Sometimes I think that Joseph didn't have a filter. I honestly think it. Sometimes I think he didn't have a filter. Can you imagine them all sitting around the breakfast table? In walks Joseph, brightly adorned with his special coat. Boys, you wouldn't believe the dream I had last night. Oh yeah, Joseph, tell us. Most of you know the dream he had. Exactly 11 sheaves of wheat bowing down to Joseph's sheave of wheat. Can you imagine the daggers being stared at Joseph? Strike number two. It says they hated him even more for it. I mean, couldn't, couldn't Joseph sense it? Now you can forgive Joseph the first time. You know, why, why he would share his dream. But a week goes by, around the breakfast table, boys, you wouldn't believe it. It's happened again. Now, it's here we're all thinking, shut up, Joseph. Can't you read the room? This time it's 11 stars, the sun and the moon bowing down to him. And by this stage, even his father's had enough. The brothers left, left in a fit of rage, took the flocks 100 kilometres to the north to an old family property near Shechem, the massacre site from before. I mean, it would, it, would, it would be comical if we didn't know what was in store for Joseph. The dreamer needed to be silenced. Time passes, maybe, maybe enough time to heal some wounds. So Jacob sends Joseph north to find his brother and to bring back a report for the condition of the flocks. Jacob arrives in Shechem. The brothers had since moved a further 30 kilometres more north, so he moves on. 
As he approaches the, the, the camp, resplendent in his beautiful robe, the brothers spot the dreamer. Bright robe, they conspire to kill him. Such had their hatred and jealousy controlled them. Now, Reuben, the oldest, he wants no bloodshed. There's been enough of that. He suggests that they throw him into the old well and let nature take its course. The text says that he did this because he was planning to rescue him later on and send him back to Jacob. The brothers agree. They strip him of the robe, they throw him in the pit, and they sit down to eat. Now, what hardened men? They're not even in their early 20s, or they're just in their early 20s by this stage, most of them. We know from reading ahead that Joseph begged and begged and begged to be released. He cried and he pleaded for them to show mercy. Imagine the brothers around the dinner table, Joseph within earshot, screaming for his life. Can you pass the potatoes, please? It's, it's, it's comical if it wasn't true. And while they're eating, a caravan of traders passes en route to Egypt. Judah pipes up. Why don't we make some money off the dreamer? Why don't we sell him? Why not, the brothers replied. So they sold him. Below market rate, just to get rid of the dreamer. Can you imagine Joseph begging for his life? Down comes the rope. Out you come. Oh, thank goodness they've come to their senses. Can you imagine the shock when he reached the top? He sees a merchant drop a pouch of coins into his brother's palm and off he goes, bound for the Egyptian slave market. The brothers took his prized coat. They dipped it in animal blood and convinced their father that a wild animal took him. Grief-stricken, Jacob had lost his favourite wife and now his favourite son. Can you imagine poor Joseph on the auctioneer's block, poked and prodded, bit upon, in a foreign country where he doesn't even speak the language? 17 years old, that's the age of a year 12 student. What would his yearbook have said? Most likely to succeed? Not now. Most likely to be Prime Minister? Definitely not. On that auction block, do you think he saw he had a future? Do you think he must have wondered where God was in all this? And we read in 37, 36 that he was sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard. And we read in 39, 2 that the Lord was with Joseph, with him along the way. Fast forward. Seven or eight years, Joseph speaks the Egyptian language now and he works hard for his master. The text says that the Lord was with him in everything he did. The Lord blessed him. Everything that Joseph put his hand to was a success. It says that the Lord blessed Potiphar's house for the sake of Joseph. Now, don't think something like that goes unnoticed. And so Joseph is promoted. Chief steward, manager of the household. The text says that Everything was left in the care of Joseph. The only thing that Potiphar concerned himself with with, was choosing the menu for his dinner. That's the only thing he wanted to take care of. What a turnaround. It was good to see God at work 
again. But what a difference a day makes. Potiphar wasn't the only one to notice Joseph. Potiphar's wife also took a shining to the lad. We read in 39.6 that, that Joseph was handsome and well-built. The curse of good looks. The text says that day after day after day, his master's wife made advances to Joseph, wanting to seduce him. And day after day after day, he rebuffed them. I read one commentator wanting to take the shine off Joseph a bit, so he's tarnished tarnish the halo. He suggested that maybe Potiphar's wife was hideous and weighed a couple of hundred kilos. <laughs> Hence, it was easy to rebuff her day after day after day. I don't think so. Someone in such a high standing as the, the captain of Pharaoh's guard would surely have had a trophy wife. You can guarantee it. Joseph was in his mid-twenties. I mean, to the men here, what were you like in your mid-twenties? You can't tell me he wasn't tempted. But you know what he did? The text says he refused to even be near her. When approached, he exclaimed, how can I do such a wickedness, a sin against God? That's, that's amazing. The law hasn't even been given yet. The law is centuries down the track. Yet, yet Joseph has such a closeness with God that he instinctively knows the folly of adultery and the sordid trial it would leave. What a strength of character this boy has. I wish I had that in my mid-twenties. He could have used his upbringing as an excuse. He could have used the tragic demise from favoured son to slave as an excuse. He could have used his position as a slave just following orders of the headmistress as an excuse. Yet he remained faithful to God and his master. Well, what a difference a day makes. We read it in the Gospels when, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, that the, the, the devil left him to come back at an opportune time. That's what it says in the Gospels. Well, that's what happened to Joseph. What more opportune time do you want with no one in the house except you and her? He rebuffs her again, fleeing her presence, but unfortunately, he leaves his tunic behind. And so she concocts a story. Joseph tried to seduce her. And she presents the tunic as evidence. You can read that in 37, 11 to 18. It's assumed that Potiphar doubted his wife's story. Otherwise, Joseph would have been executed immediately. But to save face... Potiphar sends Joseph to prison, to the king's prison, where political prisoners are kept. One step forward, two steps back. It's the, the pattern of Joseph's life. Surely now Joseph has lost cause, is a lost cause. He's exiled to the king's dungeon. It's not often that political prisoners are released without some sort of regime change. But it says at the end of chapter 39 that again, the Lord was with him, with steadfast, unmovable love. God's redemptive plan was still there in the background, working with the calamities of Joseph's life to bring about his good purposes. I know I would have struggled to remain strong, faithful, committed, but I guess if you're at rock bottom, there's only one way up. 
Again, it says Joseph was blessed in everything he did so that the entire prison was entrusted to his care. And one day, two prominent members of Pharaoh's court arrived in chains. The chief cupbearer, the chief baker. Tradition has it that an attempt was made to poison the Pharaoh with the poison not being fatal. And an investigation was launched. Who was responsible? The chief cupbearer preparing the wine or the chief baker preparing the food? And it seems based on chapter 40, verse 4, that a lot of time passed with no resolve. And Joseph was assigned to these prominent figures. Most of you will know the story. The cupbearer and the baker both have unusual, vivid dreams on the same night. And Joseph is empowered by God to interpret the dreams. Two futures revealed. The cupbearer would be restored in three days. The baker would be executed in three days. I don't know what would be there for that conversation if Joseph had his filter on then. Joseph implores the cupbearer, please put in a good word for me. Talk to Pharaoh on my behalf. I've been falsely accused. I was stolen away from my home, from my country as a youth, and I'm in here for no reason. Well, true to Joseph's prediction, the prisoners met their respective fates. Now, you would think that the cupbearer would be quick to show kindness towards Joseph. But it says in chapter 40, verse 23, that the cupbearer forgot him. Imagine Joseph in the prison, eager anticipation, sitting on the edge of his bench. He hears the rattling of the keys. Oh, surely today's the day. Surely today's the day of my release. How long did he think his freedom was around the corner? One day, two days, a week, a month? It says in chapter 41, the cupbearer forgot Joseph for two whole years. It was now time to put for God to be active. It was now time for God to place dreams in Pharaoh's mind, vivid dreams. You all know them. Thin cows coming out of the Nile and eating up fat cows. Withered ears of corn devouring full, ripe ones. And the cupbearer remembers, ah, Joseph. He's summoned, he's cleaned up, he's shaved. God gives Joseph the meaning of the dreams. Egypt was to have seven years of abundance followed by seven years of destitution. God had warned Pharaoh ahead of time to prepare. Who better? to manage the storing up of provisions that Joseph himself, a man that succeeds in everything he touches. And so Joseph is elevated to Prime Minister, second in command to Pharaoh himself. He was given Pharaoh's signet ring, fine clothing, a chariot, a wife who bore him two sons. He's 30 years of age now. And who would have thought it? A 17-year-old traumatised lad on the slaver's auction block with little hope would in 13 years' time be second in command for the whole of Egypt. God knew it. He never left Joseph. Joseph was never forsaken. 
You know, we could, we could end the story there. We could end the story there. Underdog wins, good triumphs over evil. But every feel-good story needs a twist. The abundant harvest lasts seven years, as Joseph foretold. Then the famine came. It was unusual for Egypt to be hit with a famine. It doesn't rain much in Egypt, but every year the flood brings fertility to the soil, the Nile floods. Unusual that a famine would occur in Egypt, but it did. And this famine also engulfed the land of Canaan. Canaan. Well, look what the cat dragged in. Ten Hebrew men appear before Joseph wanting to buy grain. He recognises them straight away. They don't recognise him. Remember, the last time they saw Joseph, he was 17. Now he was around 38. He had grown up. In the Egyptian style, he would have been completely shaved, wearing a headdress. His chair would have been somewhat removed in the audience chamber and he used an interpreter. The last time Joseph saw his brothers, a purse of coins was dropped into their hands in exchange for his life and his future was forever altered. And so he remains hidden. He inquires, he prods. He wants to see if his brothers are still the same rabble. He remembers them. He wants to see his only full brother, Benjamin. He was around four or five when Joseph was sold into slavery. And so he speaks to them harshly. He accuses them of being spies. He knew they weren't. He was just pushing for a reaction. They protest. He throws them in prison for three days. Maybe just a little bit of payback for the three-plus years he spent in the dungeon. And I'm guessing in those three days, Joseph devised his plans to test his brothers. He wanted to see if they were changed men or not. Can they sell a brother and still remain unchanged? Were they the same despicable rabble? If they were, then he'd want to try and rescue his full brother. He didn't know if his full brother had lived before then. A boy of four or five with such high mortality rates. But he finds out he's got a brother. What can I do for him? And so Joseph releases the brother on one condition. He will give them the grain that they seek, but one brother needs to remain in custody until they, they will return with the youngest, corroborating their story. They don't know that Joseph can understand their language, and they squabble. They start squabbling amongst themselves. I told you this was not good. I told you we're getting punished for what we did to the boy. Squabbling amongst themselves that God's punishment must be on them for selling Joseph. Joseph had to leave to weep. He returns and he chooses that boy, Simeon. He's going to be the one to remain. Remember Simeon? He was the leader of the massacre. And I think there's good reason to believe that Simeon was also the one that floated the idea to kill Joseph. The brothers return home, Simeon behind, but Joseph raises the stakes. He puts their money back 
in their sacks of grain and sends them on their way, would they return with the money? Would they return for their brother in prison? On returning home, they're devastated to find their money in the grain sacks. Surely the Prime Minister is going to notice the Canaanite money missing from his counting table. Jacob considers Simeon a write-off. He's lost Joseph, now he's lost Simeon. There's no way they're bringing Benjamin, that he's letting Benjamin go to that hostile environment. Meanwhile, Joseph, he waits patiently. Will the brothers return for their brother Simeon? Will they bring Benjamin as instructed? A year goes by and Jacob's family has run out of grain. They need to go back to Egypt. There's no choice. They must bring Benjamin. Judah pledges to look after Benjamin. So they return with Benjamin in tow. They bring new money for new grain. They bring the old money that appeared in their sacks to bring it back. And the brothers seek an audience with the Prime Minister. Joseph saw his brother, his full brother, for the first time. No longer a boy of four or five, but a man in his late 20s. He gives the order for the brothers to be taken to his house, and they're terrified. What does this mean? But Joseph has a feast prepared for them. The brothers sit at one table, and Joseph sits at another table, as was the custom, it says, in the scripture there. One of the brothers notices that all of them are seated in age order from oldest to youngest. Now, taking Benjamin out of the equation, he was, he was you know, 12 years younger than the rest of them. Take Benjamin out of, out, of, out of the equation. Remember that the remaining 10 brothers were born in the space of seven years to four different mothers or three different mothers. There were overlapping pregnancies, multiple births in the same year. What are the odds that someone can guess that? Put, their, put, 11, put 10 brothers in age order. The brothers also noticed that Benjamin received five times the amount of food than the rest of the brothers. Oh, we've been here before. <laughs> I think it was Joseph testing the waters again. How would the brothers react to seeing another son of Rachel favoured? So Joseph sends the brothers on their way. He instructs the servant to put their money back in the sacks again, as well as his silver cup in Benjamin's sack of grain. Now I'm thinking to myself, how dopey are these brothers? The first time their, their money magically appeared back in their sacks, wouldn't you make doubly sure that when you left Egypt... There was only grain in those sacks. But they didn't. Off they go. And Joseph sends his servant after them. Why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you stolen my master's cup? Now the brothers are, are taken aback. Search us, they say. If anyone has it, he will die. It's a rash thing to say. And he went, you, you see it all throughout Scripture. People make vows, stupid vows that they have to keep because, you know, oh, if they have it, they're going to die. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? 
the servant strings them along. He starts with Reuben, has to search around. He knows there's money down there somewhere. He just you know, pretends it's not there. Then he goes to Simeon. Then he goes to Levi. And you can, you can imagine the brothers getting more and more irate as Joseph's servant undoes each sack, feeling around for the lost cup. And finally, they come to Benjamin. Well, what do we have here? I would have loved to have seen their faces. Eleven jaws dropping in unison. What have you done, Benjamin? The scripture says they tore their clothes in grief. They loaded their donkeys and they went back to Joseph. Not Benjamin. Not after what they did to Joseph. Joseph is terse. The youngest brother will be my servant. The rest of you, go back to your father. What a story. You couldn't think this up if you tried. But this is where Judah stands up. Now remember, Judah, he's the one that pledged Benjamin's safety to Jacob. This is the same Judah that suggested they sell Joseph for a bit of profit instead of letting him rot in the pit. But he seems a changed man. He gives an impassioned request to the Prime Minister to pardon the lad, to show mercy. And it's here that we pick up today's reading. Joseph can't control himself any longer. He orders all his servants out of the room, just him and the brothers. What's going on, they think? Is this it? This sorry sight, this guilty rabble, this band of brothers wait to hear their fate. I am Joseph. They hear in their Hebrew language. Remember, Joseph has been using interpreter the whole time. I am Joseph. Is my father really alive? Again, I would love to have been there to see the jaws drop, to see their hearts faint with terror. I am Joseph. The scripture says they were terrified. Their guilt had followed them for 20 years. Joseph could say the word and wipe them out. No questions asked. That's what they deserved. What does he say? Come near to me. God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant for himself. You intended to harm me. God intended it for good. He embraces his brothers. Now, what, what mercy! What a, what a grand picture of the gospel themes. Can you, can you see God at work in the story of Joseph? The family of Jacob was spiralling out of control. They were supposed to be the chosen family from which a nation would come, a nation set apart for God's glory, a nation in fulfilment of the promise that God gave Abraham. But what a circuit breaker. 
God used a traumatic childhood, a dishonest father's favouritism, jealous brothers, slave traders, the captain of the king's guard, a hormonal temptress, a dungeon, political prisoners, a pharaoh's dreams and a famine, all to realign a family unit back to the path of his redemptive plan. Did God orchestrate the events or utilise the events? That's the mystery of providence. That's the, the, the answer we just don't know. But this morning I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts. If you follow Christ, I encourage you to trust in the providence of God. God works for the good of those who love him, who have, those who have been called according to his purpose. You may have had a troubled week, you may have had a troubled month, a troubled year, a troubled life, a dysfunctional family. Let God work through that as part of his redemptive plan. I encourage you, be a link in the chain of God's redemptive work. Don't make yourself the last link in that chain. God wants to use you and your story to reach others. If you don't follow Christ here this morning, I want you to realise, I want you to know that one greater of Joseph beckons you to follow. Know that Jesus, the, the masterpiece of God's salvation plan, calls you to follow him. Like the brothers, like myself, we're all part of an unrighteous rabble worthy of God's righteous anger. And you might say, whoa, hang on there. I haven't massacred a village. I haven't sold a brother into slavery. I haven't played favourites. I haven't given myself over to immorality. Have you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? You will see that such examples are merely outworkings of the evil and the callousness that's in the heart of every person here, myself included. It's not without reason that the Bible says it clearly, the best that man can do is like a filthy mess before a holy God. But here's the good news. God took your sin and mine. He nailed it to the cross of Christ. What mercy, what love. The just one bore the sins for the unjust. The righteous one bore the sins for the unrighteous. So that if any person is in Christ, they're a new creation, redeemed from a troubled life. Jesus also says, come near to me. Jesus says, I will give you rest. I have come that you may have life, abundant life. I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have come to call you to repentance. If you are feeling troubled, if you are feeling silenced, if you are feeling imprisoned, forgotten or hidden from God, know that in Christ you are favoured, you are lifted up, you are empowered you are honoured and you are reconciled to a holy God who loves you and has such a wonderful purpose for your life. Will you align yourself to that? Let's pray. Lord God, it's, it's hard to see you at work sometimes. It's hard to see you in the background. 
Lord, we entrust our very lives to you. We ask that you strengthen us, you be near us, whether on the mountain or in the valley. We know that you will work together for our good, for we have been called according to your purpose. Help us to be links in that redemptive chain. Help us to see you at work and pass that on to a needy world. Use our stories, use our lives, use our trauma, use our trouble, use our dysfunctionalness to bring about fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.